Well, did you know there are around 340,000 Christian churches in the United States? That's over 300 different denominations. And each of these denominations, if not each of these churches themselves, have a very different flavor and focus. Christianity and church life in America is very, very diverse, at least it seems so. Which reminds me, how many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, only one, but 15,738,283 have to vote on it first. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? Nine, one to change it, and eight to raffle off the old one. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Three, one to cast it out, and two to catch it when it falls. <laughs> How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? What's change? How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? A light bulb? What's a light bulb? How many Church of Christ does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but if anyone else tries it, the light won't come on. How many Nazarenes does it take to change a light bulb? Five, one to change it, and four to serve up the refreshments. How many Episcopalians does it take to change the light bulb? Three, one to do it, one to bless the element, and one to say how much they like the old one. How many Methodists does it take to change the light bulb? They don't know, but there's a committee studying the issue right now. And last but not least, oh, how many Calvary Chapel guys does it take to change a light bulb? One, but he's never on time. <laughs> Ouch. Well, we assume that churches are like ice cream, that they come in 31 flavors, but that's not how Jesus sees us. No, it's not. I believe Revelation chapters 1 through 3 teach that there are really only seven types of churches and seven sorts of members. In chapter 1, Jesus routed his revelation through the Apostle John to seven of the churches in Mediterranean Asia, which is today Western Turkey. In chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus instructed John, What you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now there were other churches in the Asian province, at least a dozen, but Jesus chose to address these seven, which brings up the question, why did Jesus select these churches and why are they listed in this order? Well, first realize that these seven cities were all connected to each other in sort of a horseshoe shape. They were connected by Roman roads. Historians suggest that these cities were stops on the local postal route. Mail would come by the sea to the port of Ephesus. From there, the Pony Express would follow a circuit. They would go north along the coast to Smyrna and then to Pergamos. And then they would swing, the route would swing inland, east to Thyatira. Afterwards, it would turn south through Sardis and Philadelphia, finally arriving in Laodicea. All seven churches were within about 50 miles of each other. These were cities with actual churches that had real people who suffered real hardships, who experienced true blessings. 
And Jesus writes to each of these churches a customized letter. We can learn a lot, both personally and corporately, from Jesus' analysis of each of these seven churches. Author Jeff Lesane, he pens, Nearly every challenge, difficulty, and problem facing the church today is addressed in these letters to the seven churches. You know, in the scriptures, the number seven speaks of spiritual perfection and completion. And I believe that these seven churches are a representative sample of all churches at that time, through the ages, even today. You know, there might be 340,000 different congregations in America, but there are really only seven types of churches and seven types of Christians. Hey, you can find you. I can find me. We can find us multiple times over in these seven letters. In fact, I believe the order in which these letters were delivered is no accident. There was more to it than just Jesus making it easy on the mailman. I know that God loves postal workers, but the spiritual postage on these letters was enough to send them much, much further. Amos 3 verse 7 is a provocative verse. It relays a divine principle. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. In essence, God likes to keep His people in the loop. He's up front with what He's up to. From creation to Christ, the Old Testament records God's workings and ways. The Gospels record the earthly ministry of the Messiah. Acts is the first 30 years of the church. But what about the 1900 years since? What we call church history or the Christian era. Has God not commented? I heard it said, a good mailman always keeps you posted. And based on Amos chapter 3 verse 7, I believe that God has kept us posted. He has recorded the church age, but in advance, in these seven letters that He's written to the seven churches. As we study these letters, we will see how each one bears an amazing resemblance to a succeeding era of church history. From Ephesus and the early church, to Smyrna, the church of the catacombs, the persecuted church of the second and third centuries to Pergamos, the Byzantine church, then Thyatira, the papal church of the Middle Ages, on to Sardis, the churches of the Protestant Reformation, through Philadelphia and the missionary zeal that was indicative of the 19th century, all the way down to Laodicea and the modern church. You can trace church history by looking at these seven churches in the order that Jesus mentions them. Bible commentator Joseph Zeiss sums it up. The churches of all time are comprehended in seven. Well, This morning we want to look at the first of these seven letters. We could title this morning's message, Loveless in Ephesus. Jesus begins His message in chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says He who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now immediately this takes us back to chapter 1 in the vision that John saw of the exalted, glorified Christ. Remember, John hung out with Jesus while he was here on earth. As a matter of fact, John was a cousin prior to becoming a disciple. 
And he had a ringside seat for Jesus' ministry. Throughout the Gospels, John was always the first to recognize Jesus. You remember when the man on the beach told the disciples to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. It was John who realized, this is the Lord. He recognized Jesus. You would have thought John, of all people, was prepared to recognize the glory of Christ. He was one of the three disciples who caught a glimpse of Jesus transfigured on the mountaintop. You remember when Jesus' humanity was peeled back and His glory shone through? John was there. He saw it with his own eyes. But understand, nothing prepared John for the mind-bending revelation that he receives in chapter 1. He sees Jesus clothed in royalty, characterized by integrity, coursing with ability, carrying great authority. And the scripture says he fell at his feet as dead. John knew he was no longer following just a model servant and a sacrificial savior. Jesus was now the conquering king. And to prove it, all John had to do was just look in Jesus' right hand. This was the hand that broke bread and that healed blind eyes. This was the hand that lifted a sinking Peter from the stormy sea. This was the nail-scarred hand, but now it's holding seven stars. Revelation 1 verse 20 identifies these seven stars as the seven angels of the seven churches. In other words, Jesus is now king of heaven and earth. Even angels fit in his palm. And notice where Jesus walks. In the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Or according to chapter 1 verse 20, the seven churches. Notice now, our Lord Jesus hangs out in the midst of seven local gatherings of believers. Did you know the one place Jesus promises to be is in His church? You know, on occasion, folks will tell me they don't feel close to God anymore. They've grown distant. And I always ask, are you going to church? Ah, well, I like Jesus, but I'm not so sure about that church. I'm not sure I like churches. Well, okay. But could it be the reason you're missing out on Jesus is that you're not hanging out where He hangs out? Jesus walks and He talks among the churches. And not just perfect churches, mind you. There's no such animal, for starters. You read the, these seven churches and you understand quickly the majority of them have some serious, serious negativity going on. And yet Jesus speaks to them and He works in them. He doesn't abandon His church. Our Lord walks and talks in the midst of the lampstands. And so... If you're not going to church, and Jesus walks among the church, how can you be walking with Jesus? So Jesus writes to the messenger of the church at Ephesus. He says in verse 2, I know your works. Now in each of these seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus is going to make this same statement. He's going to begin, I know your works. Hey, there may be 340,000 churches in America, but Jesus is aware of what's going on in the midst of each one, in the heart of each of His disciples. Deep within, Jesus knows what we're about. And Jesus starts with the good that He sees in these churches. In Ephesus, He, he mentions, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience. 
and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. What a commendation. What a great thing to say about a church. The Ephesians, you see, were doing a lot of things right. Here's a church that was recognized for their service and sacrifice and steadfastness and sensitivity and servanthood. Jesus says to them, I know your works. I know all that you're doing for me. You know, ancient Ephesus in its quarter million population was a busy city. And it made for a very busy church. The city of Ephesus was a prosperous port. It was the gateway to Asia. Its main street was paved with marble. I mean, these Ephesians, they had places to go and things to do. Even the church was hopping with activity. This church had a calendar that was chock full of events and programs. Recently, I visited a very large church out in California, and I was browsing through their weekly bulletin. I was amazed. It included the following. A Spanish service, death ministry, Arabic service, women's intercessory prayer, working women's study, men's prayer breakfast, high school mother's prayer meeting, music ministry Bible study, Korean fellowship, alcohol and drug recovery, college and career, prison fellowship, prayer for the sick, home fellowship, singles potluck, adults 50 and over, missionary fellowship, prayer for life, vacation Bible school training, and prenatal classes. I read that and I was exhausted. (laughs) This was a busy church. And it went on and on. This sounded like the Ephesian church. They had this full slate of worthwhile service and activity going on within it. Notice he also mentions not just their labor, or not just their works, but he also mentions their labor. The Greek word translated labor, it means to toil until exhausted. This was a church willing to sacrifice for Jesus' sake. You know, the church in Ephesus was committed to the Lord. They were committed to ministry. This was a whatever-it-takes mentality kind of church. You know, one of the structures that still stands among the ruins of Ephesus is its famous library, built around 100 A.D. It could be one of the reasons that the library was constructed was to protect the city's pagan literature. You remember in Acts chapter 19, when Paul preached in Ephesus, the believers, they were so moved by the gospel that they brought all their occult books and their paraphernalia, and they built fires, and they burned all of their occult stuff. Imagine, all their Harry Potter novels went up in flames. I mean, this was the kind of serious, sacrificial faith evidenced in the church at Ephesus. The Ephesians were also commended for their patience. The Greek word means to endure. This church was a stick-with-it church. It had a tenacity about it. Knocked them down and they got back up. Try and fail and they tried again. They kept a hand to the plow. They kept their nose to the grindstone. They were persistent. You know, Ephesus was home to a famous temple, the Temple of Diana. The temple was a magnificent structure dedicated to a perverted cult. Diana was the fertility goddess of the Romans. She was worshipped by committing sex acts with temple prostitutes. And little idols were made so that men could take home a souvenir. But the spread of the gospel had such an impact on the city that it had cut into the profits of the idol makers. People weren't buying into their superstition and practicing their perversity. And as a result, a riot erupted. The idol makers got mad at Paul. 
They brought his pals into the theater and they roughed them up a bit. And it was just the beginning of persecution in Ephesus. And yet, this church refused to be intimidated. It didn't shake the church in Ephesus. They continued to grow. They plowed ahead, serving the Lord, sacrificing for the Lord, steadfast in the Lord. And notice too, this church could sniff out false doctrine. They could discern false teachers a mile away. Jesus commends them, You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. I mean, the Ephesians were heresy hound dogs. They could tree a deceiver faster than you could say sick them. Here was a church with an acute sensitivity to put right over wrong and truth over error and real over bogus. They understood not everybody who says they're speaking for God actually is. And even good teachers can be wrong at times. This church was zealous for the truth. And there's one more positive commendation Jesus gives to the church at Ephesus. If you'll skip down to verse 6, you'll see it. He says, But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now what in the world is a Nicolaitan? A TV channel for kids? A box of chewy candy? What's a Nicolaitan? Well, understand, there was nothing sweet about the Nicolaitans. These guys were spiritual bullies. You see, they came into the church claiming to have this God-given authority. They threw their weight around and they used their ecclesiastical position for their own personal gain. Nikon or Nike means conqueror. Laos or laity refers to the common folk. Put the two words together and the Nicolaitans were religious leaders who used and abused the common folk. And to their credit, the Ephesians, just like Jesus, hated their deeds. The Nicolaitans acted as if the church existed to serve them, whereas godly leaders are there to serve the church. This church had been planted by Paul and pastored by Timothy, still later by John. They knew good leadership, and as a result, they had no tolerance for the Nicolaitans. So here's the church of Ephesus. What a great church. Busy serving the Lord, willing to sacrifice for the Lord, steadfast in the Lord, sensitive to the Lord and to doctrine contrary to His will. Faithful servants of the Lord. What a great church. I mean, they seem to have it all. But Jesus found one fatal flaw with this church. The exalted Lord Jesus says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. In 1993, Reggie Lewis was a rising star for the Boston Celtics. A future all-star. That's why the basketball world was shocked when an apparently healthy Reggie collapsed in practice after shooting just a few baskets. He died that day of an undetected heart disease. And you see, this was the case with the church at Ephesus. Outwardly, they were this athletic, well-toned body of Christ. They were healthy and holy. At least they seemed so. If you had visited this church, you would have thought, Wow, this is an all-star church. You would have been honored to join. But like Reggie, Ephesus had a heart problem. There's a classic Hank Williams song. Go ahead, Laura. 
It was sung by my daddy around the house. I can remember the words. I'll sing it to you. Well, why don't you love me like you used to do? How come you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My hair's still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? I don't know if Jesus is talking about his curly hair and his blue eyes. But I know he's saying one thing to the church at Ephesus and he's saying it to us this morning too. Why don't you love me like you used to do? This is what the Lord is saying. This church no longer loved Jesus as they once did. And it breaks his heart. You see, Jesus straps the electrodes to the chest of this church and he reads the EKG. Their love is old and cold. One commentator, he puts it, the furnace was still there, but the fire had gone out. The Ephesian church was going through the motions without the emotion. There's piety here, but no passion. There's duty here, but no delight. Ironically, the word Ephesus means darling or desired one. When these Christians first embraced Jesus, they felt like sweethearts, more so than servants. They were truly the bride of Christ. There was this spark, this thrill, this romance in their relationship with the Savior. Their fellowship with Jesus was indeed a love relationship. Their love was a first love, a honeymoon love. But like most marriages, this honeymoon happiness eventually came to an end. You know, if you've been married for more than a few days, maybe more than a few hours, you know how this can happen. A marriage gets busy. A husband and a wife, they begin to ignore each other. They take each other for granted. They stop communicating and nurturing their relationship. They allow little unresolved differences to drive a wedge between them. And this can also happen in our relationship with Jesus. And it robs that relationship of its first love, its passionate love, its most fervent love. You see, first love operates off of a peculiar kind of logic. Lovers, you see, think on a whole different plane than everyone else. Abandon the logic of first love, and you'll leave behind the love it produces. In 1875, a Paris painter named Marcel de la Clure, he fell madly in love with an aristocratic girlfriend. And desiring to demonstrate his undying devotion, he sent her what turned out to be the longest and simplest love letter ever written. This has been verified now by Ripley's Believe It or Not. It consisted of a single phrase written 1,875,000 times. The letter read simply, I love you, over and over and over again. That's why I'm saying, lovers do some really strange stuff. I mean, behavior that's completely logical to a lover appears foolish to everyone else. I mean, a lover will write the initials of their sweetheart in the steam on the bathroom window. Lovers can't pay the rent, but they'll buy each other expensive gifts. They travel dangerous, icy roads just to be with one another. Lovers stay up all night talking while they muddle through work the next day. They smooch while they're driving a two-ton vehicle down the road at 60 miles an hour. That's scary. To a non-participant, first love looks reckless and foolish and extravagant and wasteful. 
and uncouth. It's been said, nothing raises a man to such noble peaks, nor drops him into such ash pits of absurdity as the act of falling in love. Understand, first love has a logic all its own. It has but one goal, one priority, one overriding consideration, and that's to bring pleasure to the person it loves. That's what it's all about. Bringing pleasure to the person it loves. First love is oblivious to all other concerns. First love says, who cares about the cost or the danger or the risk or the opinions of others? This kind of of logic befuddles the onlooker, but to the lover, it makes perfect sense. All that matters to first love is pleasing the one it loves. It desires to please. And when a couple abandons their first love, it's because they leave behind the logic that fueled the fire. You see, life gets complicated. Work comes in and kids come in and responsibilities and finances and all kinds of concerns come flooding in and drown out first love. Nights on the town become evenings in the recliner. I mean, we leave behind first love when we care more about preserving than pleasing. When we allow caution to override creativity or when we prioritize safety over spontaneity. Hey, labor logic. Labor logic insists that lovers go to work rather than just hold hands. Laundry logic. You know about laundry logic? It tells us to wash our clothes rather than just take walks together. Ledger logic tells you you've got to pay your bills instead of purchasing flowers. And the secret of a successful marriage is to take care of the labor and the laundry and the ledgers without allowing the logic of responsibility to drown out the logic of love. You've got to have that first love. In a sense, this is what happened to the Ephesians. They were so determined to serve and sacrifice for the Lord, so determined to sniff out false doctrine, so determined to create a church that glorified God that they left the Lord out. They left out the Lord Himself. They neglected the Lord. They set aside this logic of love. In his book, The Applause of Heaven, Max Licato, he tells a story about the builder of India's Taj Mahal. When the emperor's wife died, Shah Mahan was devastated. He was determined to honor his wife by constructing a shrine that would serve as her tomb. Her coffin was placed in the middle of a huge parcel and construction began. But as time wore on, the Shah's grief was eclipsed by his passion to build this temple to the point where one day he bumped his leg against a wooden box. He wondered what worker had grown lazy and had just left the box sitting there. He ordered it thrown away. He didn't realize that the box was the coffin of his beloved wife. In Max Licato, he ends his story with these words, The person the Taj Mahal was intended to honor was forgotten, but the temple was erected anyway. Could someone build a temple and forget why? Can you construct a palace yet forget the king? And of course the answer is yes. The Ephesians were building a temple, a church, but without its Lord and King. They no longer had that first love for Jesus. What about you? 
There was a time when you read your Bible like you would a love letter or an action novel. There was suspense on every page. But now has your reading become robotic? Once you were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, now though, you're plugging away without plugging in. Sundays were like a family reunion for you, a party with God's people. Today, there's not much difference between Sundays and Mondays. Both feel like work. You used to long for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. When was it? When did you become an undercover Christian? How did serving the Lord turn into such a grind for you, such a chore, such a duty, rather than an act of love and gratitude? When did it happen? Remember Mary's example of first love? She, she brought a vial of expensive perfume and she just emptied it out on Jesus' feet. Even wiped his feet with her hair. That vial represented her life savings. Her 401k. Her gift was extravagant and costly and obviously misunderstood. For the disciples, they wanted to know why the perfume wasn't auctioned on eBay. And then the money used to feed the poor. Why waste a valuable tube of perfume on worship when a little Epsom salts would do the trick? And i got to ask you this morning, if you had been there, would you have shared the disciples' opinion? Would you have called Mary's gift a waste? I mean, have we abandoned the logic of first love? First love is always extravagant. It spares no expense to please the one it loves. What have you wasted on Jesus lately? An hour of your precious time on nothing but praise? A Saturday to help a person in Jesus' name? A week's vacation to share the Lord with the youth at camp? But you say, Sandy, I only get two weeks vacation, and you want me to spend one with a bunch of kids that aren't even my own? That just doesn't make sense. And that is precisely the point. First love, extravagant love, doesn't always have to make sense as long as it's pleasing to the person that it's seeking to love. First love is eager to do. It's generous to a fault. It still sheds tears over people who are lost. It reads the scriptures with a desire to obey. And when it prays, man, it doesn't just say prayers, it prays prayers. Now let me be clear. I know most of you love the Lord or you wouldn't be here today. You want to worship and serve and learn and give. Some of you will even muster an offering this morning. At home, you read your Bible on occasion. You pray at meals. You share your faith when someone asks about it. You've even thought about hosting a home group. Most people look at your Christianity and assume you're doing well. Even Jesus commends you for your service and sacrifice and stick-to-itness and sensitivity. But is there something missing down inside? Is there something missing in your heart? Are you passionate about Jesus? Is your love a first love? Is your supreme concern that of pleasing your Lord? Well, if not, if this is your problem, if you have left your first love and you want to get it back, I have some good news for you. You see, you don't lose a first love. You leave a first love. If I lost my wallet, it's impossible for me to get it back. I lost it. I don't know where it is. 
My only hope is for someone else to run across it and return it to me. But if I leave my wallet, then all I have to do is slow down and think about where I left it and return to that spot and get it back. And the same is true with a first love. If you could lose it, then you could do very little to get it back. But Jesus doesn't tell the Ephesians, you have lost your first love. He tells them, you have left your first love. And since you've left it, all you have to do now is to take some time and to slow down and think about where you left it and then go back and pick it up again. And this is what God desires for some of us today. In verse 5, Jesus lays out the three R's for recovering your first love. He tells the church, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Here it is. Here are the three R's. Remember, repent, and repeat. First, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. I love how the NIV renders verse 5. It says, remember the height from which you have fallen. In other words, Go back in your mind and recall the high point in your relationship with God. Reflect back on the good times when you lo your love for Jesus was fresh and fierce and new. When you were passionate about the Bible and thrilled about your faith. Remember the heights. Once upon a time, Mark Twain was asked to explain his success and he answered, I was born excited. And so were you. When you first embraced Jesus... You were born again. Man, you were so excited. There was zeal. The Holy Spirit was fueling your tank. Joy spilt over. Remember how thankful you were that your sins were forgiven? That that huge weight you'd been carrying had suddenly rolled off your shoulders? I mean, you wore a smile for weeks. There was a bounce in your step. There was a permanent grin on your face. Hey, you need to reminisce over the passion you had for the things of God. You remember when you were hungry for the Word? And ready to serve and burden for people. I mean, to recover first love, the first step is to remember the height from which you have fallen. And then the second step in retrieving your first love is to repent. It's just to be sorry for allowing your love to grow cold. I mean, here are a few questions you should ask yourself. What was it that became more important to me than pleasing Jesus? What other concerns slipped in and smothered my passion? What rationale caused me to reject the logic of first love? Again, Max Lucado, he writes, Satan won't steal your salvation. He'll just make you forget what it's like to be lost. You'll grow accustomed to prayer and thereby not pray. Worship will become commonplace and Bible study optional. With the passing of time, He'll infiltrate your heart with boredom and cover the cross with dust so you'll be safely out of the reach of change. He'll take nothing from you, but will cause you to take everything for granted. This is why you need to find the cause of the coldness and repent, return, retake that first love. Today, recommit yourself. In fact, I'm going to give you an opportunity later in just a few moments to recommit yourself to Jesus, to recommit yourself that from this point onward, you're going to live with a first love mentality. 
that you're going to make pleasing your Lord Jesus your top priority, regardless of how silly or wasteful it might seem to someone else. As we've said many times, repentance is the willingness to change. We can't change ourselves. Only Jesus can change us. But we can supply the willingness. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to guard against boredom and keep that flame alive? Real repentance doesn't just express sorrow over sin. It develops a plan to keep it from sinning again. Real repentance challenges unbiblical thinking and it applies Scripture to our lives. And it develops godly habits and it installs spiritual safeguards and it seeks out genuine fellowship. Take note, the second step to recovering a person's first love is to repent of leaving it in the first place. And finally, we're told to do the first works. Here's the third R. It's to repeat. It's to repeat the first works. Now, here's a vital principle. If you're taking notes, you should drop this, jot this down. It is easier to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. I'm going to say that again. It is easier to act your way into a feeling than it is to feel your way into an action. You say, but I don't feel that love for God like I used to. That's okay. But if you'll begin to repeat the first works, you can act your way back into that feeling. If you sit around trying to feel your way back into an action, you'll sit around forever. If you want to restore first love, then begin to do the same sort of activities you were doing when you were at the height of your spiritual passion and zeal. You see, this is what we suggest to troubled marriages. We tell troubled couples to start doing the first works. Hey, farm out the kids and go on a date one night. Perform random acts of kindness for one another. Just be spontaneous at times. Write each other a love letter. Send flowers. Do what you did in the beginning when passion and romance were alive. Act your way back into the feeling. And this is how you revive the first love in your relationship with God. You do those things that you did in the beginning when you were a brand new Christian. You remember how all of a sudden, man, you, you just turned off that secular radio station and you only wanted to listen to Christian music. You started reading your Bible. And it came alive to you. I mean... Now the Spirit was teaching you. Everything you read, you were trying to apply it to your life. You had no problems witnessing to a stranger. When you prayed, you didn't just pray while you were shaving or in the shower, you know. You got down on your knees to pray. Hey, why don't you try doing something daring for God like you did in the beginning? Why don't you make a costly sacrifice and trust God to come through? On occasion, why don't you just let your head, your heart lead rather than just your head? Why don't you be bold in what you ask of God? Step out in faith. Take a stand for Jesus. Even if you look uncouth or offend someone else. Why don't you pray like you mean it? Why don't you do what you did at the height? See, here's how you retrieve a first love. There's three R's. You remember from where you've fallen. You repent from your lapse. And then you begin repeating those first works. And it's important, my friend, that you take care of business. For the stakes here are really high. Jesus warns us at the end of verse 5, Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. 
unless you repent. As a pastor and as a church planner, I mourn the statistics on church closures. Did you know that in the United States, 3,000 churches close their doors every year? And yet I wonder how many of that number get shut down by Jesus. He's the one who closes them. There were times in the upbringing of my teenage sons when I had to look a boy in the eye and I had to tell him something along these lines, Son, I brought you into the world and I'm the one who can take you out of the world. Something like that. Well, this is what Jesus is saying to His church. This is what He's saying to the Ephesian church. He said, I can light a lampstand, but I can also snuff one out. Realize, Jesus tires of loveless churches. A church that has left its first love as a blight on His name. He would sooner put us out of business than watch us just step mindlessly through the paces and just play church. Remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment of all is to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. When a church ends up a heartless organization or just a machine or it puts efficiency above pleasing God, that church is in danger of being placed on the shelf. Even if some religious activity continues, that church forfeits its spiritual usefulness and its kingdom impact. And what's true of churches is true of the people in them. Jesus says in verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Man, in other words, when the king of the jungle roars, you better pay attention. Don't miss Jesus' message to His church and to you. And not only is there a warning here for failing to take heed, there's also a reward for those who do. Jesus closes His letter to the Ephesians by saying, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He's saying those who go back to where they left their first love and retrieve it, God promises the same sweet fellowship with Him for which they were created. They'll rediscover paradise and they'll munch on fruit from the tree of life. Henrietta Myers founded Gospel Light, what became one of the largest Christian publishers in the world. But despite her business success, what set her apart was just her simple love for Jesus. In Eternity Magazine, Russell Hitt, he wrote about Mrs. Myers. He said, we were having a sandwich during a Christian booksellers convention when she began to reminisce about the wonderful things God had done in her life. She talked of the Lord Jesus as simply and genuinely as a new convert possessed by first love. Tears flowed down her cheeks. It was thrilling to be with a Christian worker who had not become a pro. She really loved Jesus and lived to make Him known. Hey, this is my prayer. I don't ever want to become a pro. Call me amateur. You know, ever since I learned the meaning of that French word, I've embraced my amateur status. Amateur means for the love of it. Hey, this, this is why I serve Jesus. Not because I'm paid to or it's my duty. So what if I serve and sacrifice and be steadfast and sniff out heresy and be a servant leader? If I don't love Jesus with a first love, it is all for naught. This morning, if you've left your first love, 
I'm going to ask you to remember from where you have fallen. I want you to think back what it was like when you were first forgiven, when you were first saved. And then I want you to repent for getting sidetracked, from going sideways, for letting that, that passion die. I want you to repent. Express to God this morning how sorry you are. And then I want you to repeat a first work. And I want you to act your way back into the feeling. When most of you, the first time you pledged your heart to Jesus, you know what you did? You walked an aisle. And you stood in an altar. And you prayed a prayer with a pastor. You took that step of faith. And this morning I'm going to ask you to repeat it. To repeat that first work. You may think it's embarrassing or it's silly or that's so unnecessary. But I'm just telling you, somewhere along the line, you left that first love. And Jesus is asking you today to go back to where you left it. And to retrieve it. And to repeat those first words.